live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You know what I'm saying? Change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. Of course, joined as always with my co-host, by my co-host, Jeffrey Wilson, the the brains behind the operation. How are you, Jeff? Well, let's 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 not get crazy, shall we? Let's not get crazy. But you know, as always, fun, always awesome to be riding shotgun with you. Um, I've been wanting to speak to this gentleman. I mean, I've spoke to him before, but I've always wanted to him speak to speak to him in a more official capacity to record what he's been up to. He's one of those I like to call these uh, alchemical agents of al- altruistic agents of alchemy because he's transforming human beings' lives. And there's not a lot of people that can say they're doing that. He's not necessarily turning lead into gold, but he's he's helping people basically you know raise their consciousness and help change the quality of their life and again there's not a lot of people can say that they're doing that and we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that kind of we're all going through and how to try to maintain sanity in an insane world but even in not an insane world just every day just ways of psychological spiritual self-care very very well said very very well put uh so yeah our next guest Graduated from Purdue University around 2008. He also wrestled at University of Purdue. After that stint, then trained with me at my gym and became quite a quite a good uh, accomplished MMA fighter. And then one day he walked into my office and he said, "Hey, what kind of chance do I have to win a championship in this?" And I said, "As good as any that I've seen." And he said, "Because I've got a chance to go get my master's degree." And I said, "Well, that's not a really a difficult choice. Getting punched in the face or getting a <laughs> master's degree, you should probably go get the master's degree," which he did in economics from George Mason University. He's now a motivational speaker, a mindset coach, and an amazing hypnotist. He's done some some really cool stuff, and I've observed that and actually experienced it myself once in the past, and I'd love to do that again. So our guest, Nick Spahn. Welcome, buddy. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. And, uh, and Jeff, I really like that altruistic, alchemical, whatever, whatever you whatever Al- you said. Altruist- that was really good. Al- alchemical agent of altruism. I love it. I love that. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to start using that. That's triple A, cool. baby. Triple A. The real triple A. We've been waiting to do this podcast for a while, so I'm I'm excited to to be on here. Sure. Awesome. And so, I see it as there's two sides to everything. There's there's good alchemists and there's bad alchemists. There's folks that are throwing out incantations for for the negative all over the media, constantly programming people, and then we've got people like you that are unprogramming and reprogramming people, their subconscious and helping them to be successful in life, get rid of depression, a lot of other things. So, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that and and how that process works with the subconscious a little bit. I want to dive right into it. Yeah. So alchemy was always just a metaphor of turning kind of base emotions into those higher emotions, you know, lead into gold. And it wasn't necessarily metallic. It was the metaphor of, of transformation, right? Transforming something of a lower nature to a higher nature. And for me, you know, my journey was facing my own insecurities and my own kind of failures and weaknesses along the way. And every time I'd hit one, I'd I'd read, I'd learn from some of the masters, and I'd overcome it. And then I'd go on to the next thing, and I'd, I'd hit a wall with my, uh, you know, in mixed martial arts, Pat, and I had a guy like you to take me to the next level. And so every time I hit kind of these emotional insecurities, I would find a new technique or I'd find a new pattern, a new way through it. And after a few years, you know, that was kind of based on um, – just my real estate business and entrepreneurship. And after a few years, I realized 
you know, I've actually gone pretty deep in a lot of this stuff and I'm, I'm starting to, people are starting to listen to what I say and I'm starting to get results, just giving people new insights. And so I, I kind of put together a framework of how to use our mind and our thoughts to, to create a life that we want to create a life that's on purpose instead of having it dictated to us um, by the media, by our culture, by our society, by our parents and by our fears. And so that's, that's kind of what I do is I show people their patterns and help them decide new and empowering patterns. Okay. So when we talk about say triggers, so there's, there's triggers for everybody to a certain extent, if they've had some trauma in their lives, you know, for instance, uh, riding in a vehicle with a combat vet and when there's traffic issues, he gets boxed in by other vehicles and stuff because the IEDs that he experienced, the explosions, the injuries, you know, his friends being killed and injured, uh, he gets really uptight, really uptight. And, you know, there's things like for me, when people scream at me because I got screamed at a lot as a kid, by, as a kid, that I just don't tolerate it as an adult. And I've tried to set boundaries and let people know hey, I'm not the one you want to be yelling at. <laughs> let's let's cut that off. So, you know, talk a little bit about triggers and uh, deprogramming those types of things. Yeah, so triggers aren't even necessarily bad. It's just a, a response. The, the brain is a pattern-matching machine. And so what happens anytime there's a heightened emotion or something that gets repeated, those are the two ways the brain gets programmed, it starts to make a meaning of that situation and says, oh, people that yell, you know, when I get yelled at, I'm in a dangerous spot. I need to feel this emotion to compel me to take this action. Or when I'm trapped in a vehicle, this is a dangerous situation. Whether it is or not, the subconscious makes that meaning if we don't consciously decide. Um, but again, you could play a song on the radio that triggers a positive emotion, right? The, the subconscious doesn't discriminate between that, that good and bad. Whatever emotion is there, it links up. So it links up anything that happens in a heightened emotional state. And, you know, I guess my work is just how do we – figure out what those triggers are and then go change them. Beautiful. Jeff. Well, and it's just one of those things that I'm not, you know, I'm glad we have you on here, but it's one of those things I heard. It's like, whether it's a PTSD wartime thing, you've been traumatized as a child. We all were downloaded into our operating system from whatever it is, zero to seven, the operating system that we were pretty much going to work and play out from seven onward. So it's it's it t- talk to us about that if you will your the, how the operating system is downloaded from that zero to seven into your subconscious and then for the rest of our life we're just playing out good or bad whatever that that operating system was that downloaded and when it comes to things that are toxic or not necessarily beneficial to us how rewriting or relearning or retraining whatever the term is our our unconscious mind um, to to changing certain behaviors. Yeah, so there's a lot there. So first of all, it, it sometimes it even happens before we're born, right? This is epigenetics. If our parents have a, yes. a strong emotional event or a strong fear, that gets coded into our DNA, and we come into the world with that. And then you're right, from zero to seven is basically hypnosis, that that critical factor that um, decides do we want to take this on as a belief or not. That's not there. And so we we in that state, hypnosis is a, a heightened state of learning and focus. And so from zero to seven – we want to learn as fast as we can to be able to make it in this world, right? So everything we hear, everything we experience becomes part of us from that zero to seven so we can have our best chance of survival. And it takes a lot to go back and, and to change that. And those programs often last people's whole lives because they don't learn any different. So as a child, if they see their parents uh, fighting or they see 
uh, one of their parents using anger as a strategy to get what they want or protect themselves, guess what? That child in that moment, it can happen, you know, it happens often multiple times, but it can happen in a moment where they learn anger is a strategy for me to use to, you know, reclaim my power or to, to, to draw a line in the sand or to get what I want. And so boom, that's born. And, and then that last consciously, they're like, I don't know why I'm getting angry, but the subconscious is like, look, anger is a tool for us. Let's use it. Right. That subconscious doesn't, there's no discretion there. It's just using what's programmed emotionally. And the most important program from that zero to seven that we all have is how we get loved and accepted. Uh, so for some of us, we have to avoid our parents because we're going to get, you know, abused by them. For some of us, we have to perform or we have to be funny or we have to be attractive. We have to be all these things. And so from zero to seven, we start to learn. And and some people, they can throw a fit and they get love, right? And that program then lasts often the rest of their lives. So from zero to seven, we have this how can I get loved and accepted? Because that's my source of survival. That program starts to set in. And for most people, it, it carries with them the rest of their lives until they can really become aware, be that self-awareness, right? Know thyself, start to see those patterns. Then you can go back and you can change that. And we can talk about that next. But but let me ask you guys if you, if you have any questions, if that made sense. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about the epigenetic side of it, too, because not only do we get stuff downloaded as, as children, like you said, but DNA has and I don't know the full quantification of the terms or whatever, but DNA remembers. And, you know, it's definitely passed on when you start talking about like generational trauma, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's definitely real. Well, yeah, it's not like a crazy concept. Let's simplify it. I mean, a bird can build a nest and they didn't go to they don't have a degree in nest building, right? They don't get a. They don't go take certification programs or whatever. Like they just know because the DNA over thousands of years, every time a bird puts a piece somewhere and it's like, oh, this is how I should build it. That makes sense that they kind of have a little bit of emotional program. Boom, it sticks in the DNA uh, and then that gets passed down as instinct. And so we all have the exact same thing. Um, most of ours are, are pretty similar, our instinctual responses, but they can be very different as well based on where we were raised, our, our, our lineage. And so, yeah, it makes a ton of sense that we would have emotional responses that our ancestors had well think about you know when we talk about i mean this podcast the self-defense warrior podcast right so humans are the only animal born on the planet with no self-defense instincts born into us as well as generally the types of beliefs we're going to have religiously you know a lot of different things our opinions and things are molded by what we learn it was never born into us and humans literally are void of so many things when they're born compared to, you know, wild animals. Yeah. And that's our greatest strength and our greatest weakness, right? If you look at a crocodile, um, if they see their parents, they're going to get eaten by them. And so they're like, they're on their own from day one. And I think that's why they have such a bad attitude. Us humans, <laughs> on, the other hand, us humans on the other hand, our, our survival mechanism, our competitive advantage is that we're loved and we're taken care of. So our brain can develop. We can take our time with our with all these very complex patterns, uh, all this uh, infrastructure for language to be built and body language and movement and complex planning. That takes time and a lot of evolutionary resources to build. And so we can't go be the crocodile and survive on our own in the beginning. And so, again, Pat, that comes back to that. The most emotional thing we do as humans is learn to get love. And so from that zero to seven, we're subconsciously seeking like, okay. I said this and everybody laughed and they loved me. Let me do that again. Or I, I spilled the milk and I got yelled at. Let me, let me make sure I don't, I don't do that again. And then I'm afraid of messing up. 
Um, and so we all, and two people can have the same responses and make totally different meanings of that, right? We all make a meaning in our head of a situation. One person can get pushed around as a kid and think I'm weak. Another kid like you, Pat, can get pushed around as a kid and think that's never going to fucking happen again. I'm going to whoop somebody's ass, right? Uh, yes. But it's just, it's the same situation, but we make different meanings of that. And, and those meanings create our whole life. And so as adults, we can look at our, our emotional patterns and say, wow, I get really angry in this situation. Or, you know, when somebody stands up to me, I like, I back down and I get anxious and I get fearful. And we can generally, and this is what I do in hypnosis, we trace that back to what's called the initial sensitizing event. And we found where someone made a meaning that then constructed their whole strategy for living going forward. Mm. And we change it at that young age and then we can, and it usually collapses all of those patterns going forward. Sometimes we, we rehearse, you know, throughout the life, live your life as if that didn't happen when you're young, live your life as if that was actually a blessing in some way. This, this thing that you thought was a trauma or a negative event that you learned from it. How would you apply that in your life? See yourself living your life and then see your future with this new pattern, this new meaning. And because the brain doesn't know the difference between something that's real or imagined, we can use our imagination to imagine ourselves behaving and being in a behaving in a different way and being a different type of person. And if we practice that enough, it just becomes who we are. Does that make sense? Fake it, fake it till you make it. Sort of, but but yeah. faking it implies that you're not feeling congruent with that. But if we do it in hypnosis, where you can actually step into that imagination, and this is a this is a good segue. So um, beta brain waves is when you're living your life, and and the re- what's on the outside seems real. Alpha is when our subconscious and our and our conscious mind are, are communicating, and and your internal pictures you can start to make them into reality, and that's where we get creativity. But theta brainwaving, brain, brain waves, that's where that zero to seven, right? That's when you're getting hypnotized as a kid, that zero to seven, you're in theta. And it's the same when we do hypnosis. And right as we're falling asleep and right as we're waking up, we're going into theta. And theta is where what's on the inside, the pictures you're making, your imagination, is more real than what's on the outside. And, and so when you do that, that's when you start to experience it as you. And you feel, oh my gosh, like I, I am this person. I feel that confidence. I see myself speaking. And I know, Pat, we talked about you visualizing uh, fighting, right, in the cage. And in your imagination, that was more real than wherever you were sitting on the couch or laying in bed or whatever you were doing. And because you did that so much, you just became that type of person. Does that make sense? Sure. Visualization uh, is very powerful. Yeah. So, and, and hypnosis is really just kind of guided visualization in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and that changes the meanings that we've made on, on important life events. It changes how we see ourselves, which is the self-image, which is kind of the foundation for how we perform in the world. So that theta from zero to seven also forms that center of the universe feeling where you see a lot of people that think they're the center of the universe. And I catch myself all the time being the center of the universe where we look at people who in positions of power, say, for instance, who are demonstrating they're the center of the universe, or so they think, right? And how they are capable of selfishness, um, greed, you know, all these different things where, you know, that all of that came from because when I cried when I was a little kid, I got picked up. When I was hungry, I got fed. You know, when my diaper was dirty, it got changed. You know, cry, response, cry, response, all of that. And then we build that pattern going forward into life and 
it's amazing when I reflect on my life. I've, I've been wearing a diaper for years, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you mean that you have the same patterns as when you were a child, right? I've, I've, no, I've, you know, I've grown a lot in terms of observing and, and it's that growth out of a lot of stuff that's painful, right? Yeah. yeah and, sure. and getting through all of that stuff can be, can be exceedingly painful. And we see a lot of people that are not, you know, not necessarily growing out of things. They're not changing. They're not questioning their beliefs or anything like that. And they're just, they're staying the same, uh, mainly out of fear, probably. Yeah, and so for starters, you have to have a desire to change. You have to have a desire to improve and to get better and to really look at your beliefs and say, is this true? How do I know this is true? Does, do I want this to be true? Many times those people who have these limiting patterns or, or these fear patterns, they think they're correct. And so they're not even questioning, <clears throat> you know, they're not even questioning am I right or not. They think every time they get angry that they're, they're just right. And I, when I get angry, I'm like, what is this about me that's getting angry? Like what – you know, what's the program that I'm running here? And I look at myself and that's where you can make change. And so that's the number one thing that someone has for me to even work with them. They have to say, I'm, I'm responsible for, for my life situation and I'm willing to question my beliefs. I'm willing to question my programs. I'm willing to really look at why I respond this way instead of blaming my partner, blaming the government, blaming, uh, you know, any, anything you think of the, the president. Um, saying, what is it in me that's feeling like a victim? What is it in, in me and my background and my meanings that's, that's making me feel this way? And that's really the, that's really the start of the conversation. When I think one of those terms, and I'm sure you've probably heard of Eckhart Tolle, um, yeah. he, he talks and it was, it's very, you know, over the years of reading his books and understanding his work where he talks about your life versus your life situation. You know, and not to get too deep into it, but this is just kind of what he says. Our life, our life is where infinite conscious awareness, our life situation is our marital status, our job. I'm whatever external thing that we tend to make validate who we truly are when ultimately that's just an illusory status. When in fact, you know, our life is, you know, like I said, it's, it's way bigger than our life situation. And what do you find with a lot? I mean, cause you really, and that's what's so cool. I've been wanting to talk to you about this. And I really want to partake in one of your trips to Sedona because that's one of my favorite places on the planet. When you when you start getting these people out there, are they are they out there trying to better their already coolness? Are they recognizing that they have holes in their game and they want to stop doing X, Y, Z situation to reach this kind of next level of enlightenment? What are you finding that most people when they're going out to these retreats, what are their not specifically what are their issues? But I'm assuming they're all trying to get out of their own way to some degree. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and it's various. A lot of, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I think it's a combination of like, okay, I'm really cool in this area and I'm a total loser in this area. And right. I think that's, that's kind of the human experience. So when I do events, I think one of the coolest things that happens at them is people share their experiences and they go, you know, someone might get really vulnerable and say, you know, when I was, when I was three, I had this, this really bad thing happen to me and I always, I never feel like I'm good enough because of it. And I look around the room and I go, and they're the only person that never feels like they're good enough, right? And everyone kind of laughs because that's the human experience. And so they right. see this person who had that experience, although I didn't have the same experience, I do experience the same emotions. And this person who's super confident, I see myself in them in certain situations. And this person who's really anxious and this, and so they start to see all of their, their patterns in these other people. Mm. And, and the group kind of like gets super connected because of that. Um, but yeah, they, they want to learn how to use some of these strategies and language patterns to influence others. 
Uh, and guess what? The keys to influencing other people is the same as influencing ourselves and, and changing our own programming. And so we do a lot of work, like I talked about, going back into the meanings that they made early on in life and the values and rules that their subconscious program is using to, to basically construct their world and their perceptual filter. So everyone, as we've seen in COVID, everyone has different perceptual filters based on their life experiences. So, you know, the three of us generally have similar perceptual filters about the whole COVID thing. But we go talk to somebody else and they have a totally different 180 degree different experience of COVID than we did. Right. They, and I'm not even going to share our, our views. I'm sure. Everybody no, knows. but I, the Listen, problem is it's okay. difficult. To, it's just difficult to hear them through their mask. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, but we can say like, okay, based on their upbringing, their, the way that they relate to authority, uh, you know, the, the media they're consuming, they're constructing something based on their beliefs. And then once they believe that they just go out into the world, they'll find the scientific studies, they'll find the experts, They'll find friends that all confirm their views. And so COVID just made that more obvious, but we all do that all the time. We're always yeah. out there confirming our biases. We're looking yes. at the world saying it must be this way because this is what I believe. And I'm going to find the scientific data to show it. Right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've kind of been experimenting with some different uh, diets. and I'm on the carnivore diet right now, and I've, I've kind of done vegetarian or vegan as well. And I'm, I'm watching videos on this and – I'm seeing, you know, I'll watch a carnivore video and in the comments, oh my God, I just stopped eating vegetables. I feel incredible. Two years, no vegetables. I feel so good. This meat diet is amazing. And I'll go read the, the vegan videos, the comments. I stopped eating meat two years ago. I've never felt better in my life, right? All those meat eaters are total idiots. Yes. And I'm like, how, how can you, like, how can we have such total opposite views and everybody's having a different experience of like, you know, something as basic as what we eat. Because we're filtering the world through our, our beliefs. Yes. And it's so important. Once you understand that, you can say, oh, he's not really angry. He's just filtering the world and giving this experience meaning. And when you do that, you can start to relate to people because you know they're just – they're responding with a program, with a subconscious program. You know, that's – my kids, my two oldest daughters have already done the vegan thing. They've done the pescatarian thing. And for a year at a time. Uh, mind you, you know, these are young ladies that are still in college and they, they are really good at questioning their beliefs. And that's something that I got to a certain point where I started questioning a lot of things just because of things that had happened in my life, including, you know, certain treatments that are, you know, being mandated and things like that. But that was over 20 years ago when I started researching that. And I was raised by a lady. My mother was a nursing director at a hospital and the head of the nursing school at the time. So my whole viewpoint was absolutely everything. You've got to get the whole schedule, whatever, yep. uh, protect, protect ourselves until I started really digging in with an open mind and researching and going, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. And I don't think the risks outweigh the benefits, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. So that's just one of the many areas that I had to question my beliefs. And I still question my beliefs every day, and I'm sure you guys do too. Yeah, you have to. I mean, that's 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 the key to change. And you have to remember also that everybody was, is doing the best they can with what they've got. And it may not it may not seem like it, you know, but based on their intellectual processes, their perceptual filters, their life history, uh, we're everyone's just trying to get by, you know. And for some people, that means 
going to get the shots because they don't know better. They don't have the open mind, but, but they're, I think genuinely, you know, people are trying to do the best they can. And it's people like us who have to, to meet them with compassion and try to open their minds, right? Not ram our beliefs down their throats, uh, but just ask questions and be curious. And I think <clears throat> this ties into the, my, my three steps of hypnotic influence, which is first of all, to get into rapport with somebody. And if you're in rapport with somebody, you're not butting heads with them, right? You're finding that commonality. You're getting energetically, you're syncing up with them. And then from there, you can start to ask questions and you can start to kind of shift their, their mindset. Um, but without rapport, it doesn't work. And I, and I know I've seen this over the last couple of years where I get so dogmatic about what I believe and what I think is right, uh, hmm. that I'll, I'll bring that energy into a conversation and I'll just create like this conflict. Uh, whereas when I can meet someone who has opposite views and really have the intention of building rapport with them first, I get a, I get way farther than bringing a, a conflicting energy. A real genuine exchange of ideas, which it seems like it's so difficult to have anymore because we're so we're so all about, like you said, like, my, no, I'm right. Like my information is the information, whether it's COVID or whatever. And something something Tole said, which I thought was really powerful. And I want to get your thoughts on this. This this need obviously there's a huge ego part of it, but this need to be right about whatever it is, whether it's politics, religion, or whatever, he said ultimately is about a fear of death, because the need to be right is about the need to uh, control external circumstances, and what's the biggest external circumstances that none of us can control, and that's the fact that we're all going to die. So I mean I don't know if there's a def definite link to that, but I found that so very interesting because it seems to make sense that. A lot of people who with this stringent, um, very um, not very flexible view on the world, whatever it is, cosmology or anything else, it seems very interesting to me that there is that component of you, you need to be right because you need to control these external circumstances, whether it's, you know, control freak wise or just whatever it is. This need to control external stuff, whether it's the truth, information, whatever, your, your whatever it has to do with the fear of death. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, the need to control is always out of fear, right? I think if someone was truly, let's say, enlightened and just, you know, Jesus said, give no thought for tomorrow. I think if you were truly, if you were truly enlightened, and trust me, I'm a, I'm a long ways from that, uh, you would be in the moment just living life as it comes to you and there would be no concern and you would just know that things would work out and they would work out. Um, and when you die, it was the perfect time for you to die and it was all meant to be. Right. It's a it's a that's the work we're doing is to get to that point. But I think what it comes down to is subconsciously we all have a need to be right, because if we're right, then we're going to be accepted by our tribe that that's going to be we're going to be a value. And if we're not accepted by our tribe, like Pat said earlier, we're not going to be taken care of. We're not going to be given those few years. Uh, we're going to be kicked out of our tribe and our chances of survival are going to be way down. And so it comes back to the fear of death. And I think that's the program that runs most people's life. I have to be right because then I have value for my tribe. If I'm wrong, I'm going to get kicked out of my tribe. And if I get kicked out of my tribe, I'm going to die. And I think that's why public speaking is the number one fear because if you go mm -hmm. in front of people and you mess up, right, that fear, it, we don't consciously think about it. But the fear is if I screw this up in front of everybody, I'm never going to be able to mate again. No one's going to want to do business with me. They're going to kick me out of the tribe. <laughs> And I'm going to die, right? People go like that's where the subconscious goes. And so yeah. we miss that, though. We just get the feeling of fear like, hey, maybe we should just stay in line and play it safe because 
because the reward's not worth the risk in the subconscious unless you train that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think he's, I think he's right on that. Well, and it's, and it's another one of those things and not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but this is what we're here for. That, I mean, that fear is rooted in the, the notion of how kind of the West treats death. Like, granted, we all have different religious beliefs, like, no, there's an eternal life afterwards, but all we really know, we've never died and come back and like, no, here's what it is. All we know is this biological life that we experience in these five senses. So at, at some point, it's like, there, there's this like, you know, death is the end. And as opposed to looking at like, no, dude, it's just a transference of energy. Yeah, we're going to miss this loved one we have, but let's not be selfish about it. This life is just a parenthesis of our larger existence. So I think part of, I guess that's my question. Our, our Western treatment of death adds to the fear as opposed to seeing it as something larger, an extension of our larger life. We see it as like the end, if you will. Yeah, and you only live once, right? I either, right. But I, I, either, I either Catholic religion, you're condemned to hell. Yeah. Yes. I, th- I think that's one of the most limiting beliefs there is, is that you only live once. I think most of the rest of the world has accepted that they live multiple lives. If you look at India, they're actually often criticized because they don't have a sense of urgency about what they're doing because they're like, eh, we'll do it in the next life. As a right? grasshopper. Yeah, Americans, <laughs> Americans are like, I have one life. I gotta, you know, like, I gotta go, go, go. And they have this, this urgency. And YOLO. I think, and I think a restlessness. Um, and then one of the, one of my favorite quotes is from, uh, in the movie Hook, Captain Hook. Uh, and he's about to die and he says, death is just life's next great adventure. Uh, or something like that. Something about, you know, death is the, the final great adventure. And I was like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting way to frame it. Um, especially yeah, coming from a pirate, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, wow, were, yeah. were, were you hanging out with freaking Prince Sid Hartha or something, dude? How do you know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting thought, but I mean, I think I look at life as a, as a, as an opportunity to grow. I don't think we can do that in one lifetime. I think if I need to come back in another lifetime to grow more, great. If I am graduated from this world and I go on to something better, great. And so the the fear of death, I don't spend any time thinking about it, you know. You know, it's interesting. I, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. so I had read a book years ago by Dr. Evan Alexander, who is one of the most uh, well-known neurosurgeons in the world, educated at Oxford and Harvard, uh, genius IQ. And he believed that the brain was the beginning and end of consciousness. So when you died, that was it. Everything went dark and you were done. And then he got a blood meningitis, which I, I had a form of meningitis when I was a kid, experienced it. But he went into a coma and was brain dead for, I believe, 10 days and spent many trips back and forth to what he said was heaven and had a tour guide and, and said it was amazing and, you know, a lot of really cool things about it. But the thing that he said was, and I brought this up to another friend, Jeff, a common friend of ours, that he said, I've never told anybody this besides my wife. I died once, and I want to tell you about it. And it was because I was in a really deep conversation about a rock star that I spent four hours talking to after a show in his green room about meditation, DMT, about being able to leave his body, some really cool stuff. So anyway, this friend of ours said I was raking leaves in the yard, taking care of my grandma's house for a couple of days and raking her leaves, and must have been spores or some sort of mold or whatever that got him. And he started feeling crummy, and he went inside, he laid down, and he said he got worse and worse, and by the time he decided that he was dying and needed to call 911, he was literally paralyzed. And then he goes, I died. I died. And I took a trip, and I had a tour guide, just like Dr. Evan Alexander said, 
And he said, if everybody understood what it was like after this life, there would be no greed, there would be no war, there would, there would just be no hatred, there'd be nothing but love. And I asked him, because Dr. Edmund Alexander said when he tries to explain it to humans, it's impossible because he would ask a question of his tour guide, an angel, uh, telepathically, a question, and then instantly the answer would come back, and he said the answers were as vast as cities, but he understood them perfectly. And so I posed that to, to our friend, and I said, is that what you experienced? He said, exactly. That's exactly what it was. So it was really a confirmation for me to to have these matching experiences that are, you know, exactly like really, really cool. Well, yes. you, before you respond to that, Nick, let me ask yeah. you, how much how much is when people do, I don't know if you read Dr. Raymond uh, Moody's book, Life After Life, these near-death experiences, the things people see, it's different depending on your culture. How much of these things people often see after, quote-unquote, death are part of the downloading, if you will, of, you know what I mean, of, of your cultural norms, your spiritual norms? This person sees Jesus. This person sees Buddha. You know what I mean? Like how much is it actually happening or how much is it actually a projection of their their kind of downloading of the operating system. Yeah, so I mean our brain is metaphorical. So if you if you die and you see something and it's someone sees a white light and someone else sees a red light or someone sees a lion and someone else sees a butterfly, you know, we just they're all they're all metaphors for certain things and all of our nervous systems or brains or our souls process that information differently. And I think that's why we've had so many avatars come back to this world uh because people resonate with different messages differently and they all kind of say the same thing. Um, but you know, Jesus and Buddha and some people are, they just, they resonate differently, uh, based on their system. So I think the, the brain is creating metaphors to get you the information that you need. Does that you know what's interesting? Yes. Well, but, it, but what's interesting about that is Dr. Evan Alexander pointed out <clears throat> because he had been educated out of the belief in God, that the brain again was the beginning and ending of all consciousness. He was completely brain dead during his coma. There was zero brain activity. So therefore, he had no explanation medically, medically mm. to explain it to himself. And he goes through at the end of the book and goes through all the different medical conditions and different explanations that he would many times give people who said they had an afterlife experience or after-death experience, whatever you call it. And he said, all of these different reasons, because I was brain dead at no activity, I have no explanation for it. So mm. I think I think the divine gives opportunities like that to people to get them to snap out of their current belief system. Right. And, and it, you couldn't tell this guy about that cause he wouldn't believe it. Right. He had to experience it for himself for him to go have a whole different experience of, of the world of his soul of, you know, consciousness. And um, I think those altered states of consciousness are what people for millennia have been seeking. Right. Um, and you know, sometimes it's through drugs, sometimes it's through meditations or extreme sports or whatever, where you talk about, you know, having an increased ability to perceive, to, to accept information. And in our normal waking human state, we just have a very limited ability to do that. And, you know, I've had some experiences with, you know, mushrooms, um, psychedelics, uh, where I've had those experiences and, and I'm now on the mission of trying to figure out how to do that without those. And so, uh, I think, kundalini energy which sits at the base of the spine if you can the right way through meditation and exercises move that through your system and up to your brain that's life force energy and when that energy hits your brain you make new neural connections and you expand your ability to perceive things 
Uh, some of those may be extrasensory. Uh, some of those may just be truths that are hidden in your subconscious that, that come to light. Um, as, as you move energy up from those lower centers up to those higher centers, you become, you, your, your brain gets filled with that energy and it's like a, an upgrade to perceive more and to, and to, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You'll find this really interesting, Nick. So the, I won't, I won't mention the name of the person that's, he's a guitarist for what a lot of people consider the biggest rock band in the world. And he's also a black belt, uh, in martial arts and had that, had that long conversation with him after the concert. And we got into some really in-depth conversation and he said that he was struck by a bike when he was a teenager or struck by a truck when he was riding his bike as a teenager and he died. He left his body and he walked around uh, his town and he said, I was looking for something. I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then he walked back to his body and laid down and he woke up and he had blood all over him and he mm -hmm. got on his bike and he rode home and never told anybody about it. So I'm, I'm listening to him and he says, do you do ayahuasca? Have you eaten ayahuasca? I said, no, I've not. But I do a lot of meditation and warrior breath, and I've experienced some some pretty amazing things that I've seen. And he said, yeah, because you are releasing DMT. Your body contains yep. DMT, and you're capable of releasing your own DMT and going to different parallels. He goes, have you been able to leave your body yet during your meditations? I said, no. And he goes, I guess I was given that gift that I can, and I recognized very early on, that I was a spirit that had a body. And so I was able, I'm able to actually leave my body and observe myself when I do deep meditations and, and breath work. And I'm like, yeah, that's some pretty, that's some pretty powerful stuff when you can get to that point. I've seen some, I've seen some crazy stuff. I've experienced my dad's literally his soul blowing through my body. It was like a flash of light that went through me because all I saw was I, in my vision, I was instantly a child back to being a child. And all I saw was his arm and I touched his arm. And the minute I touched his arm, he blew through me. And mm -hmm. It was almost like a an experience of forgiveness. It was it was really really cool, very powerful. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the keys there is you're not your body, right? You're not your thoughts, and you're not your emotions. You're this this awareness, this pure consciousness that's experiencing all these things. And this is why sometimes I just laugh at all this like this gender stuff and this race stuff and and this eight like I'm just like. Why are we getting so caught up in what's like this visual thing? You know, we forget that we're, we're, con we're divine consciousness in, a, in this meat suit. Like, I don't care if you drive a truck or a Maserati <laughs> or a beat up Camry. Like, you know, for me, that's not that important. And I think the, the tribal nature in people, like the lower caveman self, um, we, we like people like ourselves, right? Like we're, that's how the subconscious, the lizard part of our brain has evolved is that people that look like us, that talk like us, that think like us, they're all, they're safe, right? And if somebody's different, they're, they're in a different tribe and we're going <laughs> to fight for resources. And so this is why most people have that default if they see someone with a different skin color and there's like this judgment. But I think once you start to realize we're this divine consciousness inhabiting a human body, you don't really care what their skin color is or, you know, what their gender is. It's, it's like, it's secondary. Well, and it's one of those things that I've always thought, cause again, going back to what I was saying, we are, yes, we are, we are spiritual beings having a human experience, but our frame of reference for that spirit world, we don't really connect to that near as much as we are living this biological world, the five senses. And going back to something you guys just mentioned, you know, um, I think it was William Blake and in the movie The Doors, when people, uh, when the doors of perception are cleansed, things will appear as they truly are infinite. And a lot of people who do, you know, certain hallucinogens, certain uh, psychedelics, they have this, this, this feeling of everything is kind of one, 
What are your thoughts on, I mean, even going back to, I remember talking about like Ram Dass back in the day. He was like a mm-hmm. super heavy into psilocybin and acid and he would go to his guru. He's in the guru's like, dude, I'm like this without any of that shit. And so right. like you said, you want to be able to reach those planes without anything artificial, but to certain people who are really kind of the journeyman in this world, I've seen a big uh, pro- proliferation, if you will, of people doing ayahuasca, psilocybin actually being used for depression therapy and PTSD. What are your thoughts on on these kind of applications of these very ancient medicines and how ideally we want to get there, like Pat was talking about, and you've talked about, want to do it without these external means, that it's within us to get there? The the poison is in the dose, right? And these are very these are very powerful medicate or you know medicines, uh, and they can give you some absolutely incredible experiences um, that will sh- totally shift your perception of the world, uh, and and bring you thoughts of love, thoughts of harmony. Um, will show you your life from a different perception. Uh, they're really powerful, and I see a lot of people, probably more than not that they fall into that trap of, well, the medicine's good. I got to keep doing the medicine, right? The medicine is, is meant to give you a little shift, a little perceptual shift. And, and people, a lot of people I know, they keep going back into it uh, and they abuse it just like, and it just becomes like, like a drug for them um, because they're trying to fix their problems. Instead of going out and facing them in the real world, they try to go, they try to go in with these drugs and, and resolve them. And another thing, Jeffrey, is when I think, I think as humans, and, and really, as divine creators, we get what we focus on. And so if you go back to heal trauma, you're going to go find some trauma to heal. Well, if you keep going back to heal trauma, you're going to find generation after generation of that <laughs> right. shit. You know what I mean? Like, and I know people who've done 20 ayahuasca ceremonies. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm doing healing work. And I'm like, no, now your subconscious is just finding something to confirm what you're looking for. Like, go live your life. Go face those things in the real world. These drugs don't do the work for you. They can give you a perceptual shift, but you still got to go into the world and do the work. Yeah. And so I think on a very limited basis, I would never push someone into them. Generally, it's someone who's like, no, I'm definitely called. This is what I need to do now. If you're questioning it, I would say wait. Um, but again, I think I, I believe that I'm going to get to a point where I can have those experiences without them. And I've had some really cool experiences already. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm going. So. You know, again, the poison is in the dose. Do, do we notice or do we find that society in general gears up, gears us to becoming doubling down on the biological self, the five D or the, the five, uh, the three D self? I mean, we're, we're, we're through even our just our interactions as humans being don't call me, text me like we're having less and less human interaction. We're moving farther and further away from our essence. Is society geared to keep us moving away from? for lack of a better term, the light and who we really are? I, I think this is probably a conversation for your Conspiracy Farm podcast, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally, I think that's, that's what's happening, right? We got rubber shoes that insulate us from the energy of the earth. We got houses that insulate us from, from the weather. Um, we got grocery stores that keep us away from our food and food manufacturing and, and additives that totally, you know, the stuff we're eating really, we can't hardly even call food. Um, and, and we spend very little time in sunlight and yeah, I think, I think that time in nature is part of the path to, I think it's harmony. I think it's, you get the energy of harmony when you spend time in nature, when you're connected to your food, when you're connected to the elements. Um, and I think 
it's important for people to have more of that experience for sure. Yeah. I imagine for people that live in a place like New York city or Los Angeles and just the constant stimulation and people and noise and just craziness, it's talk about a disconnect. Yeah. And, and if you live in the country or, you know, even a place like we live and you go to the, some of those cities, like you feel the energy, the heaviness of it and the, the, the anxiety of it. And for me, I'm like, where I live now is too much. I want to get out into the country and just be in nature and and be in that peace. Um, And I think your body and your emotions will, will show you the way if you listen to them. When it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like kind of the, the engineering of society, like we're all 90, whatever percent of us, we're all nine to fiving. We're all like driving to work, working eight hours, driving home, spending maybe a couple hours decompressing and then going to sleep and waking up and doing it all over again. And this becomes our lives and then even when we go on vacation, like I don't know about you guys, but I need at least a good three, four, five, maybe in a week to realize I'm on vacation because then it's all like, God damn it, I gotta, I gotta go back in three or four days. I need some time to really realize I'm on vacation, enjoy that disconnect and reset. Like we talked about this in our last conversation with, um, Kevin Flack from, um, um, Downrange. I mean, it was just whether it's called, what it's called rooting or walking in nature, just being in nature is just, proven scientifically to have such a great ability to help reset and limit cortisol, it's, you know, all that other physiological stuff that keeps us stressed out. And But again, our lives are just not geared toward being able to take that time. But again, you know, you speak to this, like even if it's 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of, of uh, meditation, something is better than nothing. Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many practices. Like I've read, I don't know, a couple thousand books now. I've been to 60 seminars or something on mindset and energy and whatever, meditation. And and there's so many different practices. And I think it's important to find a few that ground you, that that center you, that um, get you emotionally ready for the day and to just – and to do those. And it doesn't have to be anything crazy. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to sit and stare at a candle. And I know I think I've talked to you about this, Pat. Um, because as that, as you stare at a candle, you get that single point of focus and the energy in my system. When I do that, it starts to bubble up and it starts to dissipate. So stress or tension, I can feel it coming up and I feel it dissipate. So one of the keys to hypnosis is, um, visual fixation, fixing, you know, fixing your vision on a certain point allows you to go into trance. And so the candle serves as that. And for me, that's just a short, uh, a short way to, to burn that negative energy in my system off. And then I'm, I'm, usually go for a walk a couple times a day where I'm outside in the sun and uh, walking through the park and just kind of reconnecting and clearing my head before getting back to work. I'm afraid of becoming catatonic if I stare at a candle for too long. <laughs> I don't know. You might like it. It's it's for 10 minutes. For me, I do 20, 20 to 30 minutes, um, but it's a total reset. So, you know, I think that our, our brain and our body is an antenna. This is kind of the, one of the keys of what I teach is an antenna for vibrations. And so whatever we're tuned into, whether that's fear, anxiety, or gratitude, we will see the world through that filter. And so if you're in a, if your antenna is vibrating with gratitude, you'll go out into the world and you'll find things to be grateful for. You'll see beauty in things. If you're anxious, mm-hmm. everything that happens to you is something to be anxious about. And so as we think thoughts and we, we put those, we give meaning to those thoughts, you know, we see something on the news and we give meaning to it and we feel a little bit of fear that fear energy gets released through our um, our hormones, our endocrine system, and our hormones, and so then that kind of stores in our body, and so now the vibration of our antenna gets gets put off, 
And most people don't know that, again, you're not your emotions. You're just tuned into a certain frequency. And for me, meditation uh, and mindfulness and being in nature, what that does is it clears the energy in the antenna so you can have a clear signal again. And so most people, they have these fear-based thoughts. They're constantly pumping the news into their system. They're constantly worrying. And so they, they never get back to, like, having a clean antenna for vibrations of emotions that they want, right? And the food doesn't help. And uh, kind of our whole life is set to throw the vibrations of our antenna off. And what I want to do is I want to show people how to think and how to live to get that, that, to get those vibrations tuned into what they want to experience in this life. You know, that being said, all the years of travel, uh, as an athlete, as a coach, as a broadcaster, you know, over a million miles on United Airlines, all that sort of stuff. And we're also, I guess, understanding the world and how big crowds, a lot of people together in one place can make something that maybe isn't as dangerous as it really would be to us three. If we were together, we'd go, okay, this is what we need to do. Let's move here. Let's take care of the situation. But around large crowds, it can go south really quick, right? So that was always my thinking tactically. And I would always think, I'm in the airport, and I'm always visualizing. If something goes wrong, this is where I'm going. If I'm in a restaurant, I know where the exit is. I know where the kitchen is in case I need to get the tools. That's just the way my brain has always been wired, at least for the last, I don't know, three or four decades. And so given the vibration weighed in with the understanding of being around, you know what I mean, being around certain certain atmospheres, certain crowds, arenas full of people, somebody else fire, people get trampled, you know, that sort of shit. Yeah, so Pat, I think based on your life experiences and, and geez, even your podcast and the people you interview and the people you spend time with, I, I, I mean, I know you work with the SEALs and you do defense training. I mean, that's the filter that you view the world from. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I know that's based on your life experiences. That's how you view the world. I'll go into a restaurant. I don't even think about that. <laughs> not, I, I, no, I, well, it's like David Goggins. David Goggins in his book, uh, the uh, Living with a Seal that he was in. Yeah. Written by, what's his name? I'm forgetting. Jesse Itzler. Yeah, Itzler. So he said he noticed Goggin, Goggins always staring out windows and looking and, you know, and he goes, what are you doing, dude? Why, why are you looking out the window? And he goes, everything's a threat. Every car is a threat. Every person's a threat. Everything's a threat. I just like to be safe and look out the windows and make sure nothing's going to go wrong. Jesse Itzler goes, dude, I didn't, I didn't bring you here to be my bodyguard. He goes, I don't give a shit about you. I don't give a fuck what happens to you. I'm doing it to take care of your wife and kids. <laughs> yeah, but but again, so I think you can use that because you've got this ability to now scan, to, to come up with exit plans, to strategize. You can use that, but I think the key is do you let it run you emotionally? Yeah. Can you be, can you be right. in a space in a restaurant and be like, all right, here's the exit. Here's what I'm going to do if this goes wrong, if they come from this way, whatever. Um, but I'm good. I'm at peace because I'm at peace in a restaurant, you know, either way. But can you assess the situation and can you allow that strategy to then bring you more peace or are you going to live on edge based on the meaning that you've given? Sure. Yeah, I was going to say there's got to be like a have to be a healthy. I mean, as hard edge as those guys are, just anybody who's in that mindset of just like I, I, I never keep my back to the door or anything like that. It's like you got to strike a balance because it's like it's almost buying fire or car insurance and then obsessing about fires. Like I, I'm going to make sure this isn't going to catch up. You know, it's just one of those things you, you know, it's there like Pat, like, you know, you have the ability of somebody, you know, you, it's kind of muscle memory. If something goes wrong and you're not in that mindset, you could just flip that switch and fucking cancel somebody. That's just who you are and where you come from. But I think <laughs> even, you know, having, having those tools and being able to find that balance. Cause I, I would think that would be 
emotionally fucking debilitating and like cortisol levels through the roof. Not that you're obsessing on it, but if every moment you're just like window, window, threat, threat, like that's not how I want to roll, bro. Right. And I think it comes to some programming from having been in so many hairy situations on the street. Uh, without a, a doubt. Without as a security a... guy and stuff like that. I mean, I've had, had some pretty, pretty crazy things happen where, you know, I was one of two people trying to defend ourselves against a crowd of about 150 people. And then the cops showed up and we were back to back with them in the middle of a one way Harrison street in Davenport in the middle of a snowstorm with German shepherds diving into the crowd and stuff. So, you know, it's, yeah, I see. I, so I, I know how, how out of control people can get when they're in groups. And so I just, I always kind of keep my eye on things. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and, there, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. I think we have to look at our behaviors and say, is this serving me? Right. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways it does serve you. And I think in some ways you, you probably know you have an opportunity to, to come up with a strategy and then relax because you've got it. Right. Good points. Definitely good tools to have. It's like anything else. I think it's just like finding a balance. Me and a good friend of mine, shout out to my man, Sean Wesley. We went to some wrestling here in St. Louis, and I had gotten some free tickets, and we walk in, and I turn around, and he's not there. I'm like, where's Sean at? And he's over there talking to a cop. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? But Sean is a security guard, head of security down at the ballpark village. He's like, I saw a dude basically printing on an, on an ankle holster, and I'm like, who sees that? But this guy, out of the sea of people, sees somebody with a gun on his freaking ankle, and the guy gets snatched up and arrested. But it's just like it obviously is serving him to some degree. And Sean is a super kickback guy, so it's not one of those things that completely overrides his his modus operandi. But I'm just like he was geared that way. He was wired to look for stuff. He saw something, stopped whatever potential threat it was. But I mean, again, it's got to be it's got to be a balance because I can't imagine you know, the stress level of constantly seeing but threats it, everywhere. It just proves that we are all living in a different world, right? We all pick up totally different things and different experiences in the same setting. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things to realize is our, our lives, what we see, how we perceive the world is based on those few programs we got when we were a child. How do we love? What's important? How do we stay safe? And those emotional events then shape everything that we see. And so we can intentionally program the subconscious mind to see the world in different ways, to behave in different ways. Um, I so remember hearing uh, like a, I think it was a lawyer or a cop and they were talking about uh, what is it called? Like firsthand witnesses to an event, like in court, the people who were, no, I was there. I saw it. And sometimes that's the most unreliable testimony because you got 10 people who saw the same thing, but just saw it all very differently. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's wild. And I think where we go wrong is where we think that we're right. You know, again, it comes back to that. Uh, no, I know I'm right. Well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'll question this. Maybe let's let's see what's another perspective. And you can have two people with totally different views, and they can both be right, right? Because that's their truth and that's their experience. Yeah. Well, and I remember that's the, who I was. Yeah. That's, go I, ahead, Jeff. Sorry. I'm just saying that's who I've been. You know, my in the bar. Look, I'm telling you, a religion. I mean, I was that guy for a long time, dude. And now, I mean, it's just getting older, and it's just like. You know, I know I, I know what I believe to be my truth. Hey, get it how you live it, whatever you're trying. I think I posted a meme. I'm at the stage of my life where if you say five plus five is 13, fuck yeah, dude, you won. You know what I mean? It's like that old war game statement, the best way to win is not to play. Like, I don't, you know, cool, man. I'm not, I have zero desire to need to be right. I'm always trying to learn or whatever, but it's always, you know, I, I, I'm guilty like anybody else of like, you freaking moron. How can you not see X, Y, Z? I mean, I haven't done that in a long time, but I could, could totally relate to that well, person. You see it all the time with people, Facebook arguments back and forth. You libtard, you race, you, whatever it is. 
Right. Well, some games, some games were forced to play, right? Like the, when all of this, the lockdowns happened and all the mandatory this, mandatory that and, uh, whatever. But, uh, you know, so we were forced to play and had everyone projected what they were thinking by not being programmed by what they were told by sure. going into themselves and their intuition and, and, and acting accordingly. Of course, people who are elderly or have, comorbidities, things like that, you know, yeah, stay away, you know, protect yourself, things like that. We wouldn't have gotten to this point, right? We wouldn't have, have gotten to this point in, in the situation with the economy and a lot of other things that are going on. So that's what I'm saying is enough people project their thoughts onto a situation and it becomes reality. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But even, even within that, you know, the people that I was trying to learn from or that I was learning from or, or some of my mentors, they were like, this could be a great opportunity to make a ton of money. I don't know how yet. We're going to find a way, right? The real estate market, anytime there's change or this, this, something dramatic or people, people go into panic mode. And so because they've tuned their system, they've programmed their subconscious mind, they've decided what outcome they want. Their subconscious mind goes in the world and, and looks for opportunities. And guess what? They find it because that's how the subconscious mind works. And so when you sure. can give it clear outcomes in any situation, it will start finding ways to confirm that. So if you believe, you know, we have an economic crisis or depression, or if you believe that's the greatest opportunity to make wealth in your lifetime. You're going to start to find ways to do it. If you believe that everything is going to be taken from you, guess what? You're going to find ways to do that too. Right. So when it comes to your hypnosis, I would like to do a follow-up episode. I don't know if you're willing to do this or not, where we could have listeners listen in and go through a hypnosis session. Yeah, let's do it. So, I mean, I would be willing to go through it. And Jeff, I'm sure he would. Willing to go through it and just have you have you run the episode and do a a a, a hypnosis session okay. and pe- people could jump in and and go through that. Yeah. So a lot of times, what I like to do um, is just we do some play playing, right? We can see if we can tap into our mind to create physical experiences and then develop really develop that line of communication with the subconscious. I think is one of the most important things, and so we can ask our subconscious questions and, and start to get answers. Um, and oftentimes they're answers that we don't expect. And that's generally how we know it's the subconscious answering. Uh, so we kind of develop that line of communication. We can trace limiting beliefs or emotional patterns kind of back to their root. Um, yeah, we can absolutely do that on the session. Cool. Very cool. I was up here clucking like a chicken. <laughs> and that's the thing that we, we talked about that before on our way, uh, on a road trip that we were on where I had in my early twenties witnessed the, uh, at a comedy show, a guy hypnotized 25 people on stage and some of the people in the crowd that went along with it and he brought them on stage and you've got a hell's, a hell's angel giving birth to a baby. You've got all <laughs> kinds of chaos going on on stage. But that's when I, I recognized the light bulb went on and I went, people are so easily convinced and duped that the, uh, you know, that the hypnosis that they're vulnerable to through media and a lot of other things, how, how easily this can all happen. Right. Yeah. So I was going to say, I don't, I don't really do that kind of thing, but I know you've seen me do that kind of thing, Pat. So (laughs) I can't really say that. Um, but, but generally, yeah, because I know people are like, well, I don't, I don't want to click like chicken. I don't want to do something embarrassing. Um, and so that's not what I do generally, uh, you know, for a friend here and there for entertainment, I I will, if if they want it. Um, but if they don't want it, they're not going to be hypnotized anyway. So, you know, it's using the power of the mind to focus on having an experience. And again, when you have that experience and in your imagination, it becomes real to you. And when it becomes real to you, 
your mind, your subconscious mind goes, I must be this type of person. Let me build new neural pathways to that type of person. And so that's what we do. We just, we guide people into different imagined experiences and the brain goes, Oh, I'm, I must be this type of person. And, and that's where change starts to happen. Are there, cause I always, without, and not that I'm a freaking scholar on it now, but I always thought hypnosis was like some hustle, like everybody was in on it kind of thing. <laughs> like, are, a palm, are there, like a palm reader. I mean, yeah, I just thought it was like a, like this weird kind of grift. Cause I'm like, how can you, I mean, cause I always thought like, you're not going to do something you don't want to do. And like, it's just not how it works. But then of course that's, I would, I saw it firsthand and it does work that way. But are there people whose brains are just so freaking Trump tight? Like when, when I mean Trump, like not just so tight, they're unhypnotizable. Are there some people whose brains are just like that or can yeah. everybody's stuff be hacked? Yeah. And they're dead. Uh, so the, the human brain and nervous system and body is literally built for trance again, like zero to seven. That's how we learn. So when, when someone says I can't be hypnotized, what they mean is I don't feel safe enough to, to let somebody hypnotize me. Mm. Right. That's, that's generally what they mean. Um, and even saying I can't be hypnotized is a hypnotic suggestion to the subconscious. So hypnosis yes. is hypnosis, right? Like I can't be hypnotized. Well, that's going to be your experience then. Hypnosis is just you experiencing what you're focused on. That's, Interesting. That's pretty much it. So if I had you focus on, you know, this feeling of energy, like if there was a flame in your right hand and you imagine that and you close your eyes and you saw a flame and you felt the heat, you would start to feel tingles in your palm if you focus on it enough. Well, that's hypnosis. If I said don't think about a pink elephant, you just picture a pink elephant, right? Right. Um, and so just giving those commands to shift your focus, then that becomes part of your experience. And so people that are – like being good at hypnosis is an incredible trait because you can take ideas. You can take conscious ideas or goals, put them into your subconscious, and then the subconscious goes and delivers them for you. right? We've already seen how that, that can happen based on our early childhood program. And let's do it consciously. Let's decide like, hey, I want to have this outcome. I want to perform like this. I want to feel like this. And then we visualize it. We imagine it. We feel it. In theta brainwave state, so it becomes more real than what's on the outside. That's when the subconscious goes. It's like a, it's like a dog. It's like that German Shepherd Pat that was attacking you in that in, in that crowd fight. It's a it's a heat seeking missile for what you program it to. And so when you do that in theta brainwave over and over again, the subconscious goes, "Okay, I can do that." Like you have no idea how much power I have. I can find. I can delete everything else in the environment except what's going to take you to that outcome, and that's what it does. Is that why we become so suggestible through like basically television programming? And I don't know, again, I don't know if this is true or not, but like the flicker rate puts us in a theta mind state that makes us more suggestible. There's so many things that go on hypnotically in television. So here's a few. So you get, I, I, I talked about uh, visual fixation, right? So you get visual, visual fixation. Your eyes aren't moving. So you get that. Uh, you get emotions, right? There's like the better the show, the more emotion it generates within you. They're doing what's called opening and closing loops. So they always go to commercial right at that heightened state of like, what's going to happen? Are they going to live? Yeah. Or are they going to break up? <laughs> Cliffhanger that shit. heightened state happens, and then guess what? You get a commercial. So you're fixed on the TV. Commercial comes in in that heightened state, but you don't want to leave because you got to see what's going to happen, right? They know that. So you stick around in a heightened emotional state. Those commercials are going in, and then boom, you come back, right? The same thing like – Five o'clock news, we're going to tell you about the latest deadly virus that's ripping through our town. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I got to stick around and hear that. What is it? Uh, and so they next they, thing you know, you're in the grocery store buying pads with wings. You're not even a yeah, girl. You don't even have a girlfriend. You're like, what am I doing? These things have wings. I don't need them. They use they use these open loops. They use emotions. Um, and our brain 
like when we use language, we use language, and then based on the words, we make pictures with that because pictures are more powerful in our nervous system. Well, television is just is pictures, so that's going straight into your mammalian the mammalian part of your brain. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot that goes on with television. Yeah, so this is why I haven't had a TV for about 15 years. Yeah, smart man. Yeah, I stay away from TV as well, and and you can definitely see the people that have that have been uh, watching a lot of TV in the past few years. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is why I enjoyed having Nick on. And I mean, honestly, he's one of them cats that I want to have like a reoccurring guest. And, yeah. you know, as we, as we do, you know, further with this show, I would love to possibly attend one of his seminars to kind of see what he does and even possibly benefit from it. Cause I mean, he's been doing it. And I mean, it's not a lot of people can say they're transforming lives in, in the way Nick is. And I just think it's really cool what he's doing, man. Cause it's, it's changing the quality of people's lives. And we need now, we need that now more, more than ever, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, I think for me, like, there's a lot of things I can do, um, you know, putting out content with the podcast and, and one-on-one hypnosis and stuff. But I know the most transformational stuff for me was live events, because what happens at a live event is you get that connection with other people. And when you have connection, you get dopamine, you get oxytocin, you get serotonin. And again, emotions are what create programs, right, in our brain. And so as we're releasing those those emotions, those chemicals into our brain, we're now fertile for new belief systems. Mm-hmm. And so this is where, like, you know, I'm connected with other people, like-minded people for four days. I feel like I'm part of this group. I feel one with everybody. Boom, all of a sudden, now we go change a meaning in our life. Now we see ourselves in the future as we want to be. And it's like the, the neurons just soak up those chemicals and they, and they start to form uh, new neural pathways. And I think that's the most powerful way to, for changes is those live events and that's why that's kind of my my favorite thing in the world to do well and the, the thing is you know getting into psychological and spiritual health and all of the self-care that we lost during covid the complete inverse was happening when we're restricted from human contact no oxytocin no serotonin and it's not only are we at home we're hearing all this dog shit from fauci and all these people just lying to us it's i mean it put us i, I don't know Again, I'm no doctor, but like that limbic system of like fight or flight, we were in freaking fight or flight constantly for those two years because we're just like, you know, even if we did do our best we can to fight fear, it's like that was a pretty fearful situation. And we're not seeing people. We're not talking to people. We're not having face to face. We're wearing masks. So, I mean, like you said, as as powerful as that is, that human interaction, um, those two years and we saw it with suicide rates, domestic violence, people beating their dogs and their animals, you know, or, you know, just yeah, emergency I- room visits. And I was posting, I know we're probably going long here, but I was posting on my social media like, hey, this is a reminder that connecting with other humans is great for your immune system and it's great for your mental and physical health. Right. And, and you know, being in close proximity with other people and, and not everybody like that, but it is what it is. Yeah, fear-based well, that's, trauma, that's why at, at, at the beginning of all of this, a couple months after in, in May, we had the picnic at the park in Bettendorf. You know, we had a couple hundred people come out and, you know, there were – ridiculous comments on you know the quad city times uh, yeah you know section and and story about this and video you know of a lot of people going oh my god they're murderers they're killing people you know this and that it's just so outlandish and over the top you know that that it's the fear was just out of control so yeah we just do our best to control our own little world right that circle around us and and uh Work on work on our mindset constantly because it's definitely affected us all. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Nick, anything else uh, you'd like to bring up, or how can people get in touch with you who maybe want to uh, have have your services show up yeah. for a fee? 
Yeah, so I have um, uh, more than 100 podcast episodes. Pat's been a guest. Um, talk about all things mindset, spirituality, and so that's the Spone Trained Podcast. You can find that uh, anywhere podcasts are, but that's also on my website. So that's spontrained.com, S-P-O-H-N, and then the word trained. And then uh, Nicholas at spontrained.com for if you want to send me an email. And, and um, I don't have an event scheduled right now. I'm working on scheduling one probably late spring. Um, destination's not set yet, but uh, Jeffrey Sedona is a popular request. So we may do that again. Cool. Jeffrey, anything else from you, buddy? No, man. No, I, I could probably sit and talk to this guy forever, but I would love to have him back to continue just having these discussion, man. Cause it's one of those, like when we talk about on this show, you know, the things we're talking about isn't affecting right, left, black, white, this gender, that gender, whatever. These are things that are transcending humanity and are affecting all of us. And there's nothing more that transcends politics and everything else than than mental health, spiritual health. So I'm really, really thankful to have Nicholas on because, again, I, I've been following him, and he's literally – he's doing the work. He's putting his money where his, where his mouth is, and he's really helping to transform people's lives. And I think that is a freaking beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, thanks guys for having me. It's been, it's been an honor. And one thing I'll leave with the audience is I, I think there's one main belief that really shapes our lives. Uh, it's that we are either a divine creator of our life or we're the victim of it. And I think when we believe we're a victim of the circumstances and there's nothing we can do to change it, our nervous system shuts down and goes, well, I'm not going to put out energy here. Let me just reserve all my energy for a situation I feel like I can control. And I think a lot of people are walking around as zombies, depressed, anxious, whatever, because of that single meaning that they've given to circumstances in life. And so when you start to believe this is happening for me, I'm I'm the creator of this, I want I'm gonna change this, I'm gonna create something different, um, you get energy and you get power and your emotions will start to change with that simple belief. Beautiful. Well put, Nick. So thank you again for coming on the Self Defense Warrior and for my co host, I'm Pat Militant saying goodbye for for just a little bit. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for watching. Thanks, guys. See, see y'all. Nice job, Nick. Thank you, buddy. And definitely want to do another one in the near future where we can have you do hypnosis. Okay. Oh, shit. My bad. Yeah. I hit stop record. I didn't mean to do that. No, that's fine. That's yeah, fine. we're done. Yeah, we're done. No stress, dude. You there, Jeff? Did we lose him? Looks like it. I see him. I can't hear him. Okay. All right, man. I'll leave you alone. Let you go, dude. All right. Thanks for having me, Pat. Good to see you. Jeff, appreciate it, brother.